Hey everyone, before we kick this episode off, I urge everyone listening to like and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you may get your podcast from. So if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating, or also subscribe to us on Spotify. And I urge all of our listeners to head to our website, and you can get more than just our podcast from there. We have news stories all the time there, we have feature articles there, so head to tnpmedia.au. That's tnpmedia.au. All right, without further ado, we'll get stuck into the podcast. Talk and Power, your motorsport and motoring radio show. Now on 88.5 FM, the valley comes alive. And podcasting across iTunes and talkandpower.com.au. All right, welcome to episode 165 of Talk and Power Podcast. A little bit of a different layout for for this episode here. We're doing it live from uh, Johnny Benzine Detailing Workshop here. Johnny, thanks for having us along here. Nice. Great to have you here. Yeah. So a little bit different. So if you're listening to us as a podcast, and I'm, I'm sure lots of people are, I urge you to head back to our YouTube channel and also our... Um, uh, go to our website and watch the video as well. We have a couple of great guests with us this for this podcast. Craig Marsland, thank you for joining us, Craig. And we've also got Kim Belcastro over here. Thank you, Nick. We are really looking forward to this episode. We're going to be talking all things, um, all things Chryslers, I guess you could say, and charges and, and motorsport and lots of, lots of different yeah. things. Yeah. I think, yeah, Craig's a man of many talents, I think. Yeah, he is, he is. And we're going to find out very soon. What Master of none. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Craig, like, oh, firstly, you need to thank Kim as well for doing a lot of research in this for this episode. So well, not, not that it all came from your head, I know that, but you, you pointed myself in the right, and Johnny in the right direction. So appreciate that. It was great to hear. Now, I don't need, one of the first things I need to ask you, Craig, I mean, as a 13-year-old back in 66, you said in one of your notes there you were, you were hooked, you watched an around-the-house race. Talk us through what you saw on that day and how you came to this, this you know, you were hooked. Um, from a young age, I was, I was always interested in cars, motorbikes, anything mechanical, and it was 1966, uh, uh, on the 27th or 28th of August, it's the day of my birthday. Yep. And my dad, for whatever reason, had said, you're not going. And, of course, that was just, like, I'm going. Got up early, cut a lunch, and uh, jumped on the push bike and took off. Had no money, as usual in those days. And uh, got in there early, and I thought, I've got to get in in case you have to pay to get in the gate, so to speak. Anyway, I pedalled off, found where the pits were on Floors Road, uh, which was the council yards at the time. And the gates were open and there's a bunch of race cars in there, so I pedalled up the back, parked the bike, and that's where I sat all day in the pits with some pretty amazing cars. So let me get this right, they were racing on Floors Road. You're talking about Geraldton, Geraldton. Floors Road. I know Floors Road really yep. well. So yep. they were racing along Floors yep, Road. That was back. the start-finish line and where the pits were, and they came to Great Eastern, uh, Eastern Road, and they turned right and zigzagged up around the hills and up around Ainsworth Street, Bailey Street, and... Phelps Street and back onto Floors Row. It was around the houses as the cars did in those days. 
I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know it was there, but I know because, yeah. as I said, I know it that was road. A one-off. It was the only one they did in Geraldton. Yep. For whatever reasons, it was. I think it was the last official round the house racing. It became too dangerous. The cars were getting too fast. Accidents were happening. There was no safety like we see today. Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, so that was the end of it. But now we still see around the house racing reenacted at Northern Albany. Mm-hmm. Uh, York used to do a bit. And yep. on from there. Well, there you go. Like I said, I would learn something tonight because yeah, I wasn't I wasn't aware of that of that uh, being the case. Look, t- so basically, you grew up in Geraldton, and and that's why I'm I'm curious to know about your Geraldton upbringing because I perceive Geraldton. If you grow up in Geraldton, I think there's a natural tendency to be involved in literally a handful of things: either agriculture, sport, football, big and football up there, or cars and motorbikes. I know there's a massive following for the automotive industry up in Geraldton. Talk us through that, what it was yeah. like growing um, up there. We went up there in 1965. Dad was a policeman, and my early years I grew up in Riverton when it was all market gardens and pig farms and all the rest, and uh, the properties were worth nothing, but Dad had three quarts of an acre on the waterfront there and built a lovely home and then had to sell up and move. Anyway, I went to Geraldton when I was 10, 11 years old, and I was there till I started work and then moved on, but great place to grow up. It was only about 12,000, 13,000 people in the town at that stage, mm-hmm. and fantastic area to grow up in. Went to good old St. Pat's College up there, yep. great memories. We still get together every three months with all the old guys from school mm-hmm. and tell lies, and the older we get, the better we <laughs> were. <laughs> of course. Um, but in terms of football, and uh, yes, typical country town, everyone's yeah. into their football and whatever else. And I couldn't hit a kick a football or hit a cricket ball or whatever to save myself. Just didn't interest me. Yep. But for whatever reason, I had an interest in cars, racing. Yep. And in Riverton, there was a guys with hot rods, as they were in those days, up in the bush behind us. And they'd belt these things through the back paddocks and whatever. And so that was my first introduction to a race car as such. Yep. And anyway, I started up, Dad did some favours for people on Meadow Station. They had a bunch of old Lambretta scooters there. Mm-hmm. Most would have been the most useless um, farm bike ever <laughs> <laughs> with the little wheels. But anyway, they gave us all these dead scooters. And I, at 13 years of age, pulled them all apart, got one going and had to bump start it, got it going and immediately drove it straight through the neighbour's fence. Yeah. Little wheels and <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So I went on from there to motorbikes. That was my thing. Yeah. Um, built my first little motocross bike out of a BSA Bantam of bits off the tip and whatever I could scrape up around town. And uh, we, I started racing motocross when I was 15. Mm. It was called Scrambles in those days. Yep. yep. And along with my best mate Gary, we're still mates today, and Gary Fry is another guy, motor racing people would know, or motoring people. He's got a very, very nice 34 coupe hot rod yep. and a F350 Ford pickup. Uh, tow truck rather mm-hmm. and been at, has been at the shows anyway so we're all petrol heads yeah. but Gary and myself are motorbike riders and it wasn't until I came to Perth I was transferred down working in the bank at that stage and 1973 came to Perth and I was in, I was going to go motocrossing again and got introduced to Wanneroo Raceway yeah the rest is history yeah <laughs> yeah so talk us through so as a 19 year old correct me if I'm wrong here but you get yourself a VC Valiant I'm familiar with the VC I know yep. that one really well uh it was pretty tough by the sounds of it so 273 V8 you talked about the street scene tell us mm-hmm. what the street scene was I like back in, in in those days I I was working in the bank a good old commercial bank and I'd been transferred to Mullawa 
in 1972. And one of my schoolmates had one of these VCs, white, black vinyl roof, and it was lowered at the front with uh, five-spoke mags on it. And I'd never seen one before in Geraldton. I thought, wow, that just took my fancy. It just popped. They were ahead of their times. You now the Fords and Holdens didn't have anything to match it mm. anyway. And I get to Mullawa and little Cortina, I was driving at the time, blew it up going to work one morning. And uh, there was a white VC V8 Valiant parked in the main street. And I'm talking to the uh, mechanic there and said, oh, I've got to fix the Cortina up, better sell it. But I wouldn't mind, I'd love it to have a VC like old Ernie's down the road. And he says, oh, Ernie wants to sell it. So the deal was done. I had my VC V8 Valiant at 18 and 18, 19, whatever it was. And uh, I thought I was just crash hot. And in those days, the street scene, like street machines of today, you got your car, you put a chrome rocker cover on it, you cut the exhaust off, put a set of extractors on if you were rich, and you put a set of fatties on it. And fatties in those days were the skinny wheels. We'd get the local machine shop to split them in the lathe and weld in about an inch, oh, inch and a half okay. centrepiece, yeah. widen them out. <laughs> there was nothing available off the shelf. So if you had a set of six-inch wide fatties on the car, that was pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the early mags were Tasman mags in those days, and mm-hmm. no, no one could afford them. Yeah, yeah. And so that was about it, and the valents were easy to lower underneath the socket and wind the front suspension down and had that mean drag racer look, nose down, bum it up. did, yeah, yeah. And, and then there was a guy in town had a lovely Z28 Camaro, one of the early ones, same white, black vinyl roof and it had the bumblebee stripe around the nose so guess what Muggins did went home and painted a bumblebee stripe around the <laughs> nose of the Valiant <laughs> and had to cut the exhaust off and put a straight through Lukey on as we all did yeah. and that was it but that was the street scene if you were good enough you'd put a cam in your engine and yeah. make it sound good but I couldn't afford that. My cam in my little Cortina was to pull the choke out going down the main street and go brip, 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 and thought I was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Just explain to some of our, our listeners or viewers as well. So Mullawar, it's exactly, I think it's 96 kilometres exactly uh, inland from Geraldton. Correct. Um, it, it was, it's a small town now. It probably was same back, back then. then. Yeah. yeah, it yep. hasn't changed a lot. I actually we drove through there a year ago. It's been tidied up a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It was really in the doldrums there a while back, but it's had a bit of money put into the place, yep. and that's a bit of a tourist place. And um, yeah, But I had good memories of there. Yeah, you know, yeah, great good, wild good people. wildflowers there, isn't yes, there as well? Yep. Like, so go... <coughs> people listening head to Mullawar there's yep. a great yep. no I, I, I'm in Mullawar all the time so hello cheerio to the Bryant family as well they're probably listening yep. so yeah no so that that was basically so we're talking you're a 19 year old with this v, uh, VC Valiant yep. so by the time 1975 rolls around You've got yourself an XL charger, VH, as, as yep. Kim has yes. corrected in my <laughs> notes. Um, you go to a, a streetcar event. So Wanneroo, I believe it's the first time they've run a streetcar fixture at Wanneroo Raceway. Yes, by that time I was already helping out on the crash crew up there and got involved with the Advanced Driver Training School, mm-hmm. which I still do a, a little bit today to the short of a, an instructor occasionally I'll go up and give them a hand um, but that got me into the uh, into the motor racing scene yep. didn't think I could ever afford to go racing because it cost money mm. anyway the 
committee at the time um, came up with this idea of have streetcar racing. Virtually mm -hmm. run what you brung. You had to be licensed for the road, you had to drive it to the track, and it was aimed at the young guys with the hotties around town to come and have a go. So I couldn't help myself. I had the charger, and the old Paceway Chrysler charger had been taken off the racetrack, put on the uh, road. And the chap who owned it was a car dealer, old um, Bill Housco. Yep. And he still had the roll cage and the seat belts and the fire extinguisher. So we did a deal. I got that bolted into my road-going everyday car. And I was in the first street car event ever up there. Yeah, okay. And uh, I think I'd qualified about fifth on the grid. And there were lots of little four-cylinders and a variety of all sorts. Anyway, off we go on the first lap of the race took off and of course being a big six-cylinder it was only a standard car but they got a bit of grunt came around the back straight and I blew everyone off down the straight but when I got to the first corner I found out that standard valiant brakes and radial <laughs> tyres and, and a not so competent driver didn't mix had the biggest lose in front of the, the field oh, yeah, okay. yeah, spun out never touched anyone thank goodness yeah but the, the pride was damaged yeah that would have been <laughs> right in front of McCracken house then yes yeah, yes yeah. right on that corner yeah did yep. a big lose spun off onto the infield and you know, the pride and the ego were I had to go and bury them <laughs> and that was the beginning but um, wasn't that the whole purpose of the class I guess in oh, many ways for, yeah. for people like yourself to yep. learn the craft of racing exactly to give to just have a taste yeah and of course i had a taste and uh, i never looked back and yeah did i ran that sorry did you have to put the roll cage in the car to race Is yes you had to put the roll cage yeah you had to have a car the minimum requirement was a half roll cage okay. um a proper harness which was only a 3.1 in those days yeah. shoulder straps and a, uh, a lap belt and a fire extinguisher and I did practice on the Saturday, and everyone's making noise, and my car's still got a standard exhaust system on it. And I thought, oh, this is not a race car. They have to look good, they have to sound good, and it didn't sound any good. So I was living in Maylands at the time, and uh, so out there, jacked it up, got the hacksaw out, cut the muffler off, went to the BP <laughs> garage around the corner, had a rummage through his scrap bin, found a piece of pipe to poke out the side <laughs> and drove it from Maylands to Wanneroo on the road with no muffler <laughs> and the numbers on it. And no, we weren't, that's what, we weren't allowed to have numbers on our cars on the street, yeah. so we had to put a big cross through them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> just stupid things. Um, yeah. yeah, so anyway, that, and I did that for three meetings and the bug bit and I built a new, a proper car. Well, that leads us to my next question. So, tell me, because then you, you, you built your next car, but what was the allure? You've stepped it up into sports sedan. Yep. What was the allure? Uh, the sports sedans in those days were pretty good, and most of them were built by backyarders, and you, it was virtually open slather on the rules. Yep. Um, there were minimum requirements. They had capacity sizes, wheel sizes, um, the body you had to have the original steel shell you could the hanging panels your bonnet your mud guards etc you could do in fiberglass aluminium whatever you could afford um, but you could gut them and put big wheels on them put a hot motor in go and have fun yeah so that's what we did was it was it six litre maximum back then as well uh, it was six litres if the car came with a six litre engine okay. in the first place like a 351 falcon mm -hmm. Um, the 350 chef powered cars yep. and the Chryslers had the 340 so but you had to run them you if you you could put a V8 into a anybody any car 
but you were limited to five litres if it was not a standard type item. Yeah, okay. Yep. We'll get back to Sports Sedan because I really want to talk about Sports Sedan a bit later. I, I want to know what your thoughts are there because yeah. to me, it's always interested me. Um, so you campaigned the VC in Sports Sedan to, yes. to start with? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So how did that How did that go? Um, slowly. Yep. Uh, look, it was a, it was a good-looking motor car. Um, did it all myself, built it in my grandmother's driveway out at Scarborough in an open drive. Um and then I had a six-pack motor for it, which I bought in pieces, and it was one that came out of a Housego Paceway car, but it had been, I think it blew up or whatever, but it was all complete, but in pieces. Mm. So I had that, didn't know how to put it together, so got put onto Terry LeMay, who was doing the indifference cars, and so he built the engine. I built all the bodywork, did everything myself with the help of friends doing fiberglassing, Ken Jones, who was still in the club to this day, and... Uh, Greg Migro showed me how to paint and he did the first paint job and I don't know, it's just bunches of mates on the weekend all jumping in and having a go and put a big set of nice wheels on it, nice hot wires which were the in thing at the time, mm. wished I still had them today mm. and uh, yeah, just had the six pack in it, four speed box, um, nothing special, the diff was what we called a uh, CIG locker, yep. the good old welding rods. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, the, no, the only fancy diffs in were Detroit lockers, and they were yeah. just out of the budget. Yeah, okay. Yep. So, but, yeah, look, for what it was, it went real good. Sort of handled all right, but I was learning, and yep. it, it, it was okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So talk us after, straight after that car, then you build yourself, you're getting pretty serious now, so you build yourself a lightweight E49. That car, I think, was sponsored. That's the Southside Chrysler car. Yes. Um Talk us through that car. I'm really interested to, to know about that. Well, I bought that when I was still running the VC because the bug had bitten well and truly. I was holding down three jobs, yep. my bank job uh, during the day. I was working in Coles Supermarket at night, stacking stuff on the shelves till midnight and then working on the car till two and three in the morning. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then weekends and or long weekends and holiday times, I was working on a farm up at Walkaway, hay carting and oh, okay. anything to earn a dollar. Yeah. So, you know, so that's what we did. But I was building this car up knowing that the VC was, that was the next step, had mm. to have a charger. Yep. So got one from the wreckers, not badly damaged, and then was gradually building it up. But things sped up because in the wet one day in the VC, couldn't afford wet weather tyres coming up through the S's. There used to be a big puddle on the right. Yeah, okay. And I found out what happened when you go through puddles on slick tyres. It mm. aquaplaned straight into the fence. Yeah, okay. And smacked the front up. It could have been repaired, but that was just further incentive to finish the new car. Yep. So we got stuck into the new one and developed that over time, and that was a very, very successful race car. Correct me if I'm wrong, That some people refer to that as a Southside Rebel, is that yes, right? Yes, that's yep. correct. Yep. Okay, yep. so it was done up, I've seen, you sent through some photos, it was... Very similar to the Dukes of Hazard yep, car. That was yep. it. Yeah, okay. It came back. I painted it black, yellow, and red when I first did it in '79, and and then um, the Southside Rebel thing came up. Um, Ian Dippen's advertising man at the time was Ron Bearstow, mm -hmm. and he was his right hand man. And uh, Ron's son Brett is still involved today with Chrysler's. Yep, and. Uh, I was talking to um, Ron one day about now helping with some sponsorship and I had some ideas of how to do it, a little bit different. There wasn't much around in those days, uh, especially for club races. 
Anyway, I'd sat down with Ron and the Dukes of Hazard thing was big at the time. Southside Chrysler had the Confederate Army as their advertising gimmick. And we were just chewing the fat, as they say. Anyway, we came up with this idea of Ron said, why don't we do the Southside Rebels, Dukes of Hazards? Mm. Call it the Southside Rebel because it tied in with their advertising. And that's what we did. We did a mock-up of it painted bright red, the stars and the stripes and the name, and then I put a proposal together, sent it out to the um, uh, the dealer principal, Barry McLean, I think it was at the time, and he said, come and talk to me, and he said, we won't sponsor you but uh, in terms of giving you a bunch of money, but you can go to the racetrack and do whatever you like, but we will pay you to do advertising away from the track. We want the car out here from a Thursday to Saturday oh, every wow. week, out to put out the front, and once a month we want you to do a major shopping centre display, yep. which we'd, I'd proposed anyway because we'd been doing a lot with the Sporting Car Club to promote the racing. Mm. So it was only an add-on to what we were already doing. Yeah. So once a month we'd do a major shopping centre display on a Saturday morning and the rest of the every weekend it was on display at Southsides, yeah, okay. which was a challenge. It had to be there at opening time on a Thursday morning there in Cannington. I was living in Nolamara. So we had to have it on the trailer by the Wednesday night, take it out there and then be at work by 8 o'clock myself. Wasn't Thursday nights the late night for car yards back then? It or was then, Yeah, yes. it wasn't Wednesday it is now, but I think back then it was Thursday. Yes, evenings, that yeah. was right. Yeah, they, yep. changed, they tried a few different nights to see yeah. what would work. Yeah, um, yep. So yeah, so that was the deal. And then it was we'd close at 1 o'clock on the Saturday, as they still do now. Mm-hmm. And then you'd take it home. Now, if the car was all good in one piece and behaving itself, which they never do, um, it was easy. You could drive it on and off the trailer. But a few times it went out there with no engine in it. So we'd have to push it on. And I was sharing a house with Greg Migro of Speedway fame. And uh, so Greg and the boys, we'd push this rotten thing onto the trailer and with no motors in them, they're heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'd push it into the yard and the mechanics out at Southside must have hated me having to push this thing in and out of their showroom overnight. <laughs> <laughs> but I said to Barry after a while, now, how's it going now? Is it working for you? He said, come with me. It was a Saturday morning and I, oh, I had to be there on a Thursday night and Saturday morning with my stars and stripes shirt on and hmm. talk to people. Yep. So uh, anyway, on one Saturday we were out the front and said, Barry said, come with me. And in those days, Albany Highway there was a main road and there's lots of traffic up and down. And yeah. And he said, look at all the cars, and particularly the buses. And he said, look at the heads. And they all go past. They look at my, they're turning their heads and looking at my yard because your car has made them turn. And he said, I'm yeah. happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but don't you think they had, the, the Chrysler dealers of the day had a knack of doing that? Because if you you probably remember, even here in Osmond Park, they used to, they put an S series up on the roof yeah. for many years. They had a, a, a tendency to make people look at their yards yes. by yep. doing that sort of yep. thing. I mean, that, that, that S series was up there for a long time. Yeah. Then yeah. it was well, replaced it was with a Mitsubishi Magna. Yeah. As, <laughs> at one. It, was, it was blue, then red. And yeah. yeah, yeah. so they were, they were in tune with, I guess, marketing back in, back it in was, the day. It was. The marketing in those days was different to what it is now. Yeah. TV was in its early days. Yeah. And you now the newspapers and you know, the media, it was very different. Yeah. But I guess it coincided also with the TV show was in its infancy as well. Yeah. Dukes yeah. of Hazard in 80, I think it was done in 1980 or oh, it's commenced it in 79. The, or the South Side Rebel was 1980. Yeah, yeah. And so we put that idea together 
together at the end of 79, so mm. it must have been around that time. Yeah, yeah, the show would have been in its early infancy yeah. back then, so I can <laughs> see its popularity as well because, you know, Friday night everyone watched Dukes. Well, I did. Yep. I know I watched Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. you know. I used to watch it as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, no, I can I can, I can, can see how that how that, that mm. worked. So by this stage, I guess you're, you're fitting some serious arrow to the car because you, you the cars are starting you, you're allowed a lot more flexibility with arrow in yes. the sports sedan talk me through that because i'm curious to know how much science actually went into that or was it just trial and error taken um, to the track and a little bit of both we were not allowed to run wings or arrow in at the time but we had the little ducktail spoilers on the back like the XU1s and L34s and a bit of an air dam on the front, but that was about it. Yep. And then with lobbying, because the sports sedans at the top end of the category were very fast. In the mm. days we had the John McCormick Charger and um, Bob Jane's XU1s and Monaro's and Pete Gagan's cars, and they were very fast. And a standard sedan at high speed is extremely unstable. Yeah. They float. I've experienced it firsthand. <laughs> so you've got to do something to hold them on the ground. And our supercars today even talk about the aero. Yeah. Once you're getting up over about 130 um, miles an hour in the old days, mm. uh, you need aero and in yeah. the corners and everything. So anyway, the lobbying, we're allowed to run them from about June 1980 onwards. So I then, I used to play with model aeroplanes. They're all still hanging on the wall in my shed to this day, but as a kid. And I understood the cord of the wing and the aerodynamics and how they worked. And I built umpteen aeroplane wings. So we upscaled it to the dimensions of what we were allowed within the rules. And I built a giant model aeroplane wing upside down, put a little gurney lip on the back. I did my research. And it was all done to the correct scale. It was adjustable. Anyway, we put it on there and rocked up at the track and they all laughed at me. Ah, all crap. And it uh, happened to be raining that day and I couldn't afford wets again. So had slicks on because very few of us had wet weather tyres in those days. So you had to learn how to drive. Mm. Anyway, I got out there and um, they were all laughing at me. And a few who had the wet weather tyres etc um, I was able to beat them I won the race so when you say when you talk about slicks back in the day you're talking about full slicks like no grooves you know, no like grooves no full, grooves full slicks in, yeah. Yeah, they were, I can remember the sizes they were 27 inches high by 12 inches wide on the back yeah the wheel rims were 10 by 15s 10 width was the maximum we're allowed to go so all round yeah so yeah, 27 by 12s on the back and about 24 by 11s on the front. Right. So, and I couldn't afford to buy new tyres. And on one trip over east, I'd met Kevin Bartlett, with, who was running the Camaro in 1980. And he was only running the same size tyres at the time. And we were in Adelaide and they were doing their test days. And uh, they they'd do a practice run, pull the tyres off. And I'm parked next to them. What do you do with them? Oh, whatever, sell them, so how much? $100 a set, thank you, I'll take them. <laughs> so I used to buy Kevin Bartlett's second-hand tyres and bolt them on the charger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Like, you were able to win a race on a, on, on, oh, s- on slicks uh, yeah. in the yeah, wet. Like, like, by traction, even though, like, by today's standards, on 
flexed. It's still horrible. But I was able to crank the wing up at the back and just push the back down and gave him traction. Because um, it was quite a large wing from the photo that I saw that, yes. that Hume's provided. It was, it was actually it was, quite it a was, large it wing. Was the maximum dimensions allowed. Yeah, yeah. And the Ian Diffin car, which is around today, which I also put the wing on that, mm -hmm. and the wing on it today is the side panels I built. It's been reskinned, um, but the shape is correct. So I presume it's my ribs inside with a new yeah. shell being yeah. put onto yeah. it. But it's the same dimension. Yeah. That's what I love about sports sedan. That's what I love about this this category because it lends itself to being able to to innovate and yep. and, and yep. build your own mm -hmm. stuff. Yes. Not where we're operating in such a, <laughs> such a small window. Now yeah. the car must be like. Yeah. Such. It was a way of going fast on a budget. Yeah. You now you could throw a big engine into a little car and away you go. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, it was good. I loved them, and as I said, there were some wicked sports sedans around in the day, and then I just over time gradually progressed up the ladder not very successfully but had a go yeah yeah you mentioned this car just before the Ian Diffin uh, V8 powered charger yep. you saw that for the first time at the Pagoda Ballroom yes that was an annual show yep. was it, it a was a West show? Coast Rod and Custom show they'd have a show every year and they did it at the Pagoda Ballroom for quite a number of years in the 70s when I came to Perth yeah. at least and I don't think I missed any of them and I just went in there and I knew the different car was being built and went in to look at the hot rods because I love anything mechanical, cars, motorbikes, speedway, drag racing, road racing and old aeroplanes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I went in there and here's different cars sitting up on stands in the middle of the display area and it was just, wow, this yeah. was something way out. We've never seen anything like it. Yeah, yeah. So talk us through, I mean, for those that are listening, I'm really interested to know, because not many people would actually know Ian Diffin. I think a lot of the younger demographic wouldn't be aware of yeah. Ian Diffin and who he was. And and I read a, a quote somewhere, and I'll read this quote out mm -hmm. verbatim. Um, it says, Ian Diffin is as West Aussie as Court Marsh Bold Lily. So he was a quintessential West Australian. Yes. Talk us through... Ian Diffin and okay. the man you knew. Okay, the Ian Diffin, the first time I came across the name was around the house racing in Geraldton and I think he was a young fellow either just out of university or maybe still there and had a Cortina from memory. But I remember the name, Didn't can't remember him on the day or anything else. He was just out there having a go like all, most of the other young ones. Yep. You know, later years, Ian went on to be a successful tyre dealer. There was Ian Diffin World of Tyres. Mm. He did work for Bob Jane over east for a little while and Ford Australia and whatever. He's got very smart man. Yeah. Anyway, he came back here and set up the Indifferent World of Tyres and uh, it was he was the Bob Jane of WA. He was, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And a real nice guy to go with it and put a lot into motorsport, got behind the car club, did a lot of promotions, used put a lot of his money up front to you know, um, bankroll it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And did some fantastic promotions in the mid seventies. Yeah, yeah. And but as a person, really nice guy. Um, he wasn't a loud mouth. He was a driver, a very good driver. And like a lot of us, has to work hard at being a good driver. I, I wouldn't call Ian a natural type driver, but he was up there. Yeah. Um, he, he put him in a good car, and he was a very, very capable driver. Mm -hmm. And no, he he was a winner on the day. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We hope you're liking this podcast. If you are, head to our iTunes or Spotify um, podcast channel and like and subscribe 
to us there. Also, head to our website, tnpmedia.au. You can get all of our episodes, every single one we've ever recorded, from our website there as well. There's also a heap of YouTube content, so head to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us there. That's Talking Power. Wherever you get us, make sure you like and subscribe us there. Uh, we can really do with the, uh, the subs. Thanks, everyone. Now back to the second half of the podcast. You end up buying that car, but before we get to that, I, I know Kim told me before, but I read it as well, that that car, the Ian Diven car, was originally owned by uh, Doug James. So the, our dra- we have a lot of drag racing fans that listen to our podcast. A lot of people would know Doug James and his son, Al James. Yeah. They were campaigning the Ram yes. Charger at the drags. Yep. I did not know that he owned this vehicle to start with. Uh, prior, to, prior to Ian Diffin. Yeah. Um, talk us through that, because that's um, quite a All lineage. I know is I think it was a car in his yard, and um, for whatever reason, they were looking for a six-pack charger. Yep. They wanted to go racing, and I guess the word was put out, and he had one, so Ian bought it. Yeah. I think, it, I don't know how old it was, might have been a year old or something I, like that. I think from memory, he might have actually only owned it for six to nine months yeah. before yeah, it, it was went back. To Paceways, yes, and then from Paceways basically pass that on to Ian. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, there was a link there between the two. I can't remember mm-hmm. which one came first, but they were both involved. And now the car was relatively new, and they bought it, and he ran it in in 1973. The touring car rules changed, and I think Ian wanted to get into that. And the charges had gone really well in '72. Um, they had the four-speed gearbox by then, and they ha- had all promises there to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, the supercar blow-up of the time yep. um, with the media and everything squashed a lot of it. Chrysler pulled the pin and there was no more development went mm. into them, which is a shame because they achieved more in two years than what the other ones had done in ten years. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, that's history. It's all the what-ifs. Mm. Ian bought a Charger to go racing in the new category, Group C, which started in 1973. Modifications were very limited to what you could do to the car, and they were the true production touring cars of the day. Yep. And he built it, and he ran it, and I think he was the highest point scorer for a Chrysler that year. But by then they knew that they were outclassed. There was no development gone into them. So everyone, including the Gagan brothers and everyone, they pulled the pin and that was the end of it, really. Mm, Uh, Other than uh, uh, club races and whatever, the Mm -hmm. enthusiasts. So then they thought, well, I've got this car there. What are we going to do with it? And somehow Ian ended up with a V8. Uh, That was one of the Chrysler's experimental engines that come out here for... try out if they were going to use a V8 to go racing and I think they had maybe two or three of them. Anyway, they I believe they gave him this engine and they put it into the Charger and turned it into a sports sedan yep. because they also at that time the sports sedans were big. There was big dollars over East for the, oh, the series, I think it was like $50,000 prize money or something. Yeah. Not a lot of money. So they threw the 340 up the front with a uh, holly on it and it went quite good mm. and then um, John Goss came over here with his XA uh, sports sedan at the time this is 73, 74 73 anyway thereabouts mm. and a couple of others Porsches and whatever and Peter Brock in the early uh, XU1 V8 I think and anyway it was a great day uh, they all had a good old carve up amongst themselves and 
this car was showing good potential. Yep. So they got enthused then and put quad webbers on it and moved the engine back, I think, a little bit, um, took it to the next level again, and it went a bit better. And then cars like the McCormick Charger appeared, very radical, and, well, this was the way forward. Yeah. So um, then Ian obviously spoke to Terry LeMay, who was his mechanic all the way through, and Jamie Gard, who was another engineer locally, had built Formula 5000s, big sports cars, competent engineer. Uh, Phil Bartz, who started off as an apprentice at Paceways, was involved in mechanicing for race cars, and um, John Haggerty to a lesser extent, and they put their heads together and came up with this radical machine, which was really built to beat the McCormick car. One of the key things there is that the McCormick car, I believe, had a mid-mounted engine. Yes. So yep. Under the, the rules, the you were allowed to move the engine back to the midway point in the car. So the back of the block was not allowed to go past the centre line mm. and aimed at getting the weight distribution 50-50 or whatever they thought was the in thing at the time. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the gearbox had to remain up front. Mm-hmm. The suspension was free, um, whether you put in a live axle or independent suspension, do as you like. Um, the body had to remain, the silhouette had to remain the same. You had to retain the most of the steel body, yep. but you could cut floors out and build whatever to thing. I think the, some of the suspension pickup points in the early days had to remain the same. If you look at the different car today, where the front pickup points are on that, it's roughly where the top wishbones would have been. Yeah, yeah. Um. <coughs> so you end up racing. You end up. How, how did you end up with the, the with this particular car? Um, well, after Ian had finished with it, the car when it went was very, very fast. It had, had all the potential there, but because they'd persevered with the 340 engine to match the 350 Chevs and Falcons at the time, the the cylinder heads weren't developed to the stage where they are today. Mm. They were very difficult. They had to do major reworkings on the ports. Lots of welding and all sorts of things were done to them. And they were fragile. It was very hard to keep head gaskets in them. And it, when it went, it was very fast. Yep. It had just under f- just under 500 horsepower at the flywheel in the day, which was as good as it got. Yeah, today, that's road that's cars, that's, that's nothing. No. Yeah. You know, the, the average touring car of the day had about 400 and a bit, yeah, and, and that was good. But anyhow, this thing had gone 500 and had all the goodies in it. It was a Transam-based engine, roller cams and uh, gear drives and dry-sumped uh, mechanical fuel injection on it. It was state-of-the-art, mm. and you couldn't buy better. Yep. And... Uh, so with the freedoms allowed, they had this independent front suspension built. It was called a rising rate suspension, which was Formula One type technology yep. from the time. And that's Jamie Gard's doings. Had independent rear end on it, uh, which is not in it today. Um, but when Brian Smith bought the car after Ian sold it, it wasn't in his budget to buy the rear end. It was a, an expensive yep. rear end. So it ended up with a Ford 9-inch in it, like most things back then and the same now. And it did the job. Yeah. Yep. Um, but when it went, it was fast, but it was it was fragile. Yeah. And yep. so Ian gave up on it. No, he, he wanted to go racing. He wanted to win. Time was marching on. The opportunity came to buy Bob Jane's uh, XU1 mm-hmm. V8 Tirana, which had a history of its own. Yeah. So Ian bought that and off he went, and he was up the pointy end of the field and had fun. Mm. Yeah. So the Charger got sold, Smithy bought it, 
They detuned it a little bit. Bill Bartz was still the mechanic, got it going. Brian won a state championship with it and did quite well, but still had its quirky handling problems and it never got fully sorted. Yeah, okay. And then Brian, being the good driver that he is, was offered to drive with Basil Riccadello, yep. their sports sedan. Yes. So the Charger was put in mothballs, put on the market, and uh, Muggins came along, had fond memories of this car, and my six-pack had been going well. The sponsorship with Chrysler had finished because they became Mitsubishi dealers in 81. Mm -hmm. So they were happy to remain as a secondary sponsor, but we couldn't be the Chrysler. Yeah, okay. So Pizza Hut, I was helping out Phil Myers at the time, who was sponsored by Pizza Hut down the speedway, and they happened to see my car in the garage and it wasn't racing. And, you know, why isn't it out there? Well, no money. <laughs> Simple. And they said, well, you haven't come and spoken to us, have you? Because I knew the managers there, but they didn't realise that car was yeah. me. Yeah, okay. And uh, so I'd seen it on display and around the shopping centres. So yeah. we did a deal with Pizza Hut, then it became the Pizza Hut Charger and Southsides were secondary sponsors. Yep. And uh, so did very well with that. We won a lot with it in 80 and 81, won the six-cylinder series, won the Twin State Challenge over East, came second in the 300 endurance race two years in a row. Mm -hmm. So we were up there yep. and beat a few V8s, which was a real thrill when they all laughed at me for building a Chrysler. <laughs> and, uh, and then I had to have the different car. Uh, Pizza Hut wanted me to be in an outright winning car yep. in a V8 and I had an opportunity to buy on a very nice V8 Monaro but uh, similar price to the Charger but had to have the Charger didn't I? I just yep. couldn't help myself. Anyway I got it. I should never have bought it because I, I, I never had the wallet to match it. But yeah, okay. I tried. I just had to have a go. Yeah, yeah. And I did. I had a go and I matched its best times had a huge crash in it uh, at the national championships. And of all people I crashed into was Brian Smith, the previous owner. Okay. <laughs> oh, it was the first lap of the race. We're over the back of the hill in Cobb Corner. Yep. And Alan Jones was over, just finished with his world championships, was driving the Porsche sports yep. sedan for Hamilton. And, and uh, he was here that meeting. And first lap, we're all nose to tail over the back of the hill. Smithy is in uh, Basil Riccadello's very first V8 Alpha. Yeah, the first one, yeah. And uh, anyway, he was two cars in front of me, and I'm presuming someone tagged him because Brian just wasn't the sort of a driver to spin out. So I presume he got tagged in the middle of the corner, spun out. The car that would have hit him would have turned left. I was behind him, and here's Smithy facing me head on in the middle of the corner, and we're foot flat through the corners. So I hit him head on. Oh, and, uh, wow. Spun him around, and there's about five cars involved. And I, I, I thought I'd killed him. <laughs> and it, was, yeah. it was very nasty. Yep. And pushed the front of the headlights of the Charger back to the windscreen just about. Wow. There's just only a framework to hold yeah, the front yeah, end in. And, yeah. and uh, anyway, it was all good. Everyone was okay. No one was hurt. We all got out. Uh, the cars were a mess. I think two got written off. The Charger, we should have chucked it in the bin, but I went home four weeks later. It was up and running at the next race meeting. Yeah, okay. And uh -huh. um, just repaired it myself um, with the help of friends. Had to put a new subframes and everything into the front of it. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he did it. Yeah, and, uh, yep. Anyway, we got there, and I got there on the Sunday morning, and it started overheating or something, and I I don't lose my temper. I'm not a... I'm not an agro-type person. Anyway, I did my lolly with it after all the work and all the big repair job, and this thing played up. And I went out in the next race, and I thought, you piece of crap. And 
I just gave it everything that it had. We used to rev it to 7,000. Could go more, but seven was my limit because it cost dollars to go over it. Yeah. Anyway, it could, you'd take it to seven, eight comfortably. Anyway, I did. And the engine just changed. It came to life. It was just a sound to this day I've never experienced since. Yep. And I did its best times ever, and that was it. Fantastic. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Imagine this seven, eight. Yeah, I know, seven, eight. That. It's, it's right there. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, well, and the thing is, it's alongside you. It's solid mounted, Mate. big aluminium panel. There's no rubber mounts in the car. Yeah, Everything yeah. is solid. You feel every little vibration through it. And when with the roller cam and all that mechanical noise and no mufflers in those days, two four inch yeah. what are three inch drain pipes out each side, it was a beast. It was angry, angry, angry yeah. motor car. What about heat? Oh, hey, it was hot. Yeah, <laughs> didn't care. Man. Yeah, okay. No, yeah. You just just it ignored it. Yeah, yeah, and we only did sprint racing. There were no real long distance races. Yeah, yep. Uh, but yeah, it was hot because all the extractors were right, were right alongside your left leg, mm. and we yep. had a big uh, about a three-eighth inch aluminium scatter shield plate down there. But yep. if it hung a leg out of bed, hopefully it stopped it going cool any though. further. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same thing. Victor might not like that. No, he wouldn't like that. Doesn't like the heat in the car. No, no. Well, the new cars are even worse because they have the windows up and for the. Uh, streamlining and all of that sort of thing, aerodynamics. Yeah. And even though the engine's in front of them. Yeah, but these guys have got cool suits, they've got oh, ventilation. Oh, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're wusses. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move off that car, Kim, I want to talk to you just briefly. You were, you and Craig were kind of instrumental in retrieving the original compliance plate of that vehicle. Talk us through, talk us through that. Correct. Yes, accidentally re- retrieving it. Um, obviously, it was it was known where it was, but not to not to uh, not to the then owner of the car, um, Shane Anderson. Um, Phil Bartz had had made contact with the Charger Club, and was interested in seeing the car again. And um, uh, we arranged a time with with Phil and Shane to get together, and I I tagged along, essentially to take some photos for an upcoming story that um, the late Gary Bridger was, was putting together for Australian Muscle Car Magazine. And uh, Shane and Phil were talking and we sort of got to the point where we were discussing the heritage heritage of the car and its um, original numbers. And it was a shame that the compliance plate was missing and the Indefenders were missing. And uh, Phil said, oh, I know exactly where the, uh, the compliance plate is. It's in my shed. And uh, so Shane was quite excited about uh, the chance to, to retrieve this and um, I sort of left Shane and, and Phil alone for a little bit to discuss what was going to happen and in the end Phil offered to um, just reunite the tag with the car and uh, it took a while for that to actually happen. Uh, was that the 2018, I think it was? Yes. Um, Hot Rod and Street Machine show. The car was there, wasn't it? The car was yeah. there. Yeah, yeah and, I remember. Um, we tried a few times previously to, to get together, but just things didn't pan out for whatever reason. Shane was busy, Phil was busy, and uh, I suggested to Shane that we all get together at the Hot Rod Show, and um, the incentive was I'll, I'll grab some tickets for, for Brian, for Phil, we sit down and have a coffee and have a chat. And uh, Phil just produces an envelope with a, with a tag in it and says to Shane, here you go. And that was it. Handshake and the tag was back with the car after what, probably 40 years. Well, 
Um, Yeah, it was built in 74, 75, so that's when it would have come off. It had been in his shed since about about that era, 75, 76. Yeah. Mm. I I know the compliance plate, the car's never going to go back on the road and go down and get groceries, but it's still an important part of of the car, isn't it? Just explain to people, like, I know it's a racing car, so the compliance plate isn't necessarily required but it's still it's the dna of the car that that car was an originally a road car wasn't built like a drag car is these days that's made out of frame and then Mm, they flop a body over it just explain to people like the importance of that that reunion yeah so originally the the car was left the factory as an e38 six-back charger Mm. big tank so they're a fairly rare car to start with um in its probably, if it was in its original form, it'd be worth a lot more money than what it is as a as a sports sedan. But it's just there was discussions about um, whether the car was an E38, whether it was a big tank, whether it was a small tank, was it an E49. There's a lot of conjecture about where the car originated from, um, and just having that tag actually because it's a it's it's birth yes, certificate yeah, basically pretty much yeah, and then that, that put it back to it being owned by, by Doug Jack. Uh, sorry, uh, Doug James. Yeah. And yeah. Al James was, was instrumental in saying, no, it was Dad's car, you know, and uh, sure enough, uh, Doug had a ledger with the numbers in there, the license plate, the, the, the engine numbers, the whole lot. So, yeah. Do you feel the car comes to life when that happens? Um, I think it just it just gets people talking, you know. Yeah. gets people talking about its history. From a motor racing perspective... Because there's now historic racing and sports sedans is a class that the historics are coming together now, as some of the other categories have over the years. And apart if you want to go racing with an historic car, you've got to be able to pr- prove its history. Yep. And whether it's chassis numbers, build plates, whatever, it's an open wheel or whatever it is. Because there are unscrupulous people out there today who like to pass something off as being an original and it's not and motor racing in particular, there's some very, very desirable cars out there. So if you want to get historic logbooks and the certificates of recognition and everything, you've got to be able to prove it. And part of it, that would be a part of having that original build plate yep. from the factory, and they can tie it in with the CAMS Motorsport Australia records going back in the day and all the rest of it, and that's a link, even mm. though that car's well-known and no-one's going to be silly enough to go and build a, 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 du- a duplicate one. Yep. But the rule applies for everybody. So, as you say, it's a birth certificate. Yeah. No. Yep. So, yeah. We'll talk about that process shortly because I know you've gone through that mm. with the car that you've built, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. I just want to touch on one more famous car, and this is the one that really interests me as well, the John McCormick Ansett car. Mm. So you were really privileged enough or you know, uh, worked hard enough to, to actually drive both probably most famous sports sedan charges in the, in the field back in the day. So mm. one was the indifferent one and one was the Ansett car. Talk us through, I know they, they're two different cars, but were there any similarities between the two or were they complete yes, different they're, beasts? They're both very similar. Mid-engine, um, when I had the charger, I, I bought it to get the mechanicals out of it, uh, the, the McCormick car. Yep because this was a few years after the different car and I had to sort of recoup the bank balance. And Anyway, I was building a new sports sedan. It was going to be an XJS Jaguar and I needed running gear. 
And like a lot of those cars that were built, we chopped up old Formula 5000s and whatever you could get your hands on because no one wanted them back then. Mm. You know, just get whatever you could. You know, one of the Elfins uh, that Tim Slaco had ended up being in Basel, but Riccadello's first uh, GTV Alpha, I think it is, um, the first body shape he's got now. Yep. So that was an Elfin got chopped up to get the running gear out of that. So they had Huel and gearboxes and diffs in them, yeah. and and the McCormick's car was based on Elfin running gear as well because he ran Elfin mm. Formula Five Thousands. And the car by the, the 1987, I bought that car. It was tired. Now it had been racing pretty well right through from about 74 onwards. John had it for a few years, and Tony Edmondson had it. Both John and Tony had some pretty decent crashes in it. Mm. And then Dave Farrell in South Australia had it for a little while. He was more of a speedway guy, but had a go. And he put the later model CL front on it. And I think he ran a Chev in it at that stage. And then when he'd finished with it, Peter Finch, who was another well-known driver of the day, bought it and he put a Holden motor back into it. Because McCormick had a Repco Formula 5000 Holden engine in it. So five litres because of the rules. So... Peter Finch was a bit of a Holden man, and he put a Holden motor back into mm-hmm. it. He ran it for a while. He came over here to Perth, lived here in Perth for a while. It was in my shed here for quite some time. And Dick Ward, who was another well-known sports mm-hmm. sedan racer and um, motorsport person in WA, organised a group of cars to go to Malaysia every year to go racing. So they'd take a dozen cars up there in containers, and Finch took the... Uh, charger up there and did quite well but again the monsoonal rains had lots of wet weather and he tipped it on its side I think at one stage yeah, okay. uh, I don't think it went right over but yeah, you know, had another whack and uh, anyhow, by the time he came back he'd sort of finished with it and it was an old car it was yeah. worn out yeah, and yeah. there was no motor in it so I just bought it to get the running gear out of it Yeah, okay. and uh, I did put a Chev in and it ran it for one year just to help make up the local numbers until I was ready to pull it apart. Yeah, okay. So um, we did that, and then I pulled it apart, built my new car, but the body of it, it was worth nothing, but we couldn't just take, throw it down the tip. And Don Behitz, who's another charger person and historic-type person, we were mates, and I sold it to him for the grand sum of $1,000 for the shell. He just wanted it to have it as an ornament. He was going to paint it up as it used to look, and put it in the corner of his workshop and uh, but we saved everything I never used in the new car every last bracket nut and bolt we put it in a big wooden box and even for some time afterwards I'd find another part Don got another bit and for 25 plus years Don just kept it wow. and then my um, the, the Jaguar I built with all the running gear in it um, I then hit on hard times when Mr Keating gave us the recession that we had to have all those years yep. ago had a young family, so the the, uh, the, ra- the race cars had to go. You yep. know, you've got to sell stuff to survive. Yeah, yeah. So it went off over east to auction and disappeared. And then years later, Mark Trenoweth, who owns John McCormick's Jaguar Sports Sedan, the one he built to follow on from the Charger, he's owned that forever, still owns it today. And when I was building my car, Mark helped me with building mine and John McCormick was very good I was able to ring him up and talk to him and he he was very helpful and Mark was brilliant and 
we got camshafts done for me and body panels and Kevlar stuff and we became good mates and when Mark used to come over here to race he'd, he'd stay with me and his crew. Yeah, yeah. That was back in the 80s. And, uh, and then years later um, Mark found my car somewhere over east because it was Jaguar, it went to Jaguar people and there were pallet loads of engines and wheels and all sorts of spares went with it. So I think people bought it to rattle the bits and put it onto other things. Yep. Anyway, Mark found the chassis and the rolling chassis and the body and he bought it. Didn't say anything to anyone for a long time and then eventually he said to Don, well, Don, I've got the running gear, you've got the car with the body, one of us has got to restore it. So they came to an arrangement that Mark was perhaps in the best position to do so and the rest's history. Wow. But getting back to your original question of driving the two cars, yeah. very similar, both state-of-the-art, open-wheeler suspension, mid-engined. Um, the McCormick car was more forgiving, it was more sorted, and it was a nice car. Um, the Dippin car was a handful, but the thrill, they were they were same but different, if that makes sense. Yeah. They were both awesome motor cars. I would have either of them back today with a truckload of money to do the things that we couldn't do back then. Yeah. And yeah, they were just mind-blowing motor cars. They were the cars of the era. Same as you jumped into a modern car today, they'd blow mm. your mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, p p both of them were equally good. One was a success, the other was essentially a failure, but not for the lack of trying. It was just the technology wasn't there. Yeah. And typical race cars, Formula Ones, you're pushing the edges of technology all the time. Yeah. And some win and succeed, some don't. Yeah, but yeah. That's nothing against the people or whatever. It's just how it goes. Yeah, yeah. We'll have more from Craig Marsland in part two of this great podcast coming up next week. So make sure you tune in next week for part two of this podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. <laughs>